couple weeks ago, I was the third customer in the checkout line at Aldi. As the cashier finished ringing up a man's groceries, he went over to the counter to put his groceries in a bag. How many of you know the drill at Aldi, right? So I'm watching him do that. There's a young couple in front of me. They're putting stuff on the conveyor belt. As I'm watching this man put groceries in his bag, he holds up a package of garlic. And he gets this quizzical look on his face. And then he reaches for his receipt, and he starts studying his receipt. And then I see him turn with his garlic to take it back to the cashier, and I heard him say, I didn't pay for this. And the look on the cashier's face, she was like, "Uh, I don't think she expected honesty, right, in the middle of her day. So she just put the garlic aside and kept helping this young couple. Well, now I'm watching this young couple, and the woman turns to the cashier and says, let me pay for his garlic. So she rung up the garlic. This young woman went over to the man who's still packing his groceries, handed him the garlic, and she said this, no one should be without garlic. (laughs) Well, this made me smile, and so after I paid for my groceries, I went over to this young couple, and I thanked them for what they did. And I told them that their spirit of generosity ended up rewarding a man for his integrity. I think I freaked them out a bit. They just were kind of staring at me. Um, They got a little uncomfortable. I got a little uncomfortable. I, I do have that effect on people, so I'm used to that. Well, in a world where stealing is common, this Aldi shopper was committed to keeping commandment number eight, found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, which says, you shall not steal. The Hebrew word for steal means to quickly carry something away by stealth. It's the idea of deceitfully appropriating someone else's property without permission. When the Hebrew was translated into Greek, the word in Greek, you've heard, klepto, from which we get kleptomaniac. Let me make a few observations. Number one, this command is directed to every individual. We're all going to hear this as a group, but it's directed to each of us. The tense is second person singular, meaning each of us individually need to take this command to heart. Secondly, this command is comprehensive. We're not to steal anything from anyone at any time for any reason. And thirdly, it's stated in the strong negative, just like seven of the other commands. So stealing is an unconditional prohibition for everyone. We're not to steal a person, a place, or a possession. Now to say it positively, God wants us to be just and generous. Now one of our problems with this simple and straightforward command is we think we get a pass on this one. We think, now come on, this one doesn't apply to me. Uh, We'll see about that. So God, we now, as we've seen your word and heard it in our ears, Uh, Lord, we don't want to be people who just hear and walk away. Lord, we now want to enter a time of deep, personal, uh, 
worship as you have revealed yourself in your word. And every command reveals your holy and righteous character. Lord, as we hear this command, as we consider our own lives, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take what we hear today and apply it to our lives. Those of us who need correction, rebuke. Lord, there's some who came in today or engaging online who need encouragement because it feels like life is so hard. There's others who feel weak today. Lord, all of us need to be equipped so that we could learn how to follow you more faithfully and to bring others along with us. So we commit this time to you. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher, our encourager, and may we participate then in what you want to do in our lives and then through our lives for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before going much further, let's review where we've been and where we're headed. I appreciated how Pastor Andy last weekend reminded us that when we go through the storms of life, Jesus is with us. Now, let's review the summary statements we've been using to help us remember the Ten Commandments. If you don't have one of these bookmarks, there still are a few available if you look around in the seats around you. You don't have to stand, but let's say these commands, these summary statements of the commands together. One God, no idols, revere his name, remember to rest, honor parents, No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, and no coveting. Now, as we look ahead, the last sermon in our series, after commandment number 10, will be a message called Christ and the Commandments. What did Jesus teach about the Ten Commandments? The following weekend, Pastor Kyle's dad, who is a pastor, will be preaching, and he'll be here that weekend to lead an ordination council for Pastor Kyle, Jason Crosby, and Justin Rumley. That will culminate with a special ordination service on Sunday afternoon, August 8th at 3 o'clock. I can't wait to be part of that and to bring a message for that. Jot that down on your calendar, Sunday, August 8th at 3 o'clock. In mid-August, I plan to finish my sabbatical, which was put on pause during COVID. Now, to understand the prohibition against stealing... Let's take a step back and let's look at some foundational biblical principles. Number one, settle this. God owns everything. That breath you just took, from God. However you got here today, truck, car, bike, walk, from God. The clothes you're wearing, from God. Where you're living, from God. He owns everything. Psalm 24 to 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So God owns everything, watch this, and every one. He owns you. So to say, I can do whatever I want, I'm my own person, not really. He owns you. Number two, everything I have is a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 puts it in the form of a question. What do you have that you did not receive? Number three, 
I am a steward of all that he's given to me. We don't use the word steward a lot in our culture, so think the word manager. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So I'm called to manage what God has entrusted to me. Let me say it like this. God holds me personally responsible not to misuse Watch this, what ultimately does not belong to me anyway. Number four, I must respect the property of every person. So this command, commandment number eight, presupposes the right for people to have private property. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 61.8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. And number five, I must be a giver, not a taker. Instead of stealing, I'm to be involved in sharing. Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal. So if that's your issue, Paul says, stop, don't steal anymore. Well, what should you do? Rather, let him labor. Paul says, get a job. Doing honest work with his own hands. Why? so that he may have something to share with someone in need. Here's the main idea I want us to get today. I couldn't do it in one sentence, so here's two. When we steal, we take from the person who possesses it and from God who owns it. When we trust God's providential provision, well, then we'll treat people and their property with respect. In a survey by the Barna Group, 86% of adults claim that they keep this command. They're like, no trouble with this one. Well, someone's not telling the truth. (laughs) That's the command next weekend. Because stealing, are you aware, is the most common crime in our country. Well, here's a list of the top five crimes committed in the United States. By the way, I checked this with someone from the Rock Island Police Department, someone who works in the Davenport Police Department. I've looked at other cities around the country. It's about where it's at. 60% of all crime is theft, followed by burglary, robbery, motor vehicle theft, and then aggravated assault. Now, before we look at some common ways that we steal from people, let's consider why we do it. I'm reminded of an early episode from the Bob Newhart show. Any of you remember that show? No, like the old Bob Newhart show. By the way, Corey McAnally calls me Bob Newhart. So, play, I don't know why I just told you that, so... So playing a psychologist, so Bob Newhart is counseling a kleptomaniac. Do you know who's playing that? Henry Winkler, Winkler, right? The Fonz. This is before the Fonz is famous, right? So he begins by asking Henry Winkler this question. Now, why do you take things that don't belong to you? Winkler answered simply, because I want them. (laughs) Uh, That's actually why we steal. We want them. 
We desire what someone someone else has, so we take it. I appreciate the insight of one pastor who suggests there are three additional reasons why people steal. First, discontent with what God has given. God, I don't like my place in life, and I'm not content with what you've given to me, so I'm going to take from someone else. Secondly, I don't think I can trust how you're leading me and how you're going to provide for me, so I'm distrusting your care for me, your providential love. Number three, and this is really what's behind it also, it's a denial of love for neighbor. To take is to hate. To loot is to loathe. You know, we all want something for nothing, don't we? I heard about a man who tried to sell his boat and his trailer. He's asking $500 for them. He had no takers in over a week, so he decided to change the sign. This is how the new sign read. Boat, $500. Free trailer. It sold the very next day. (laughs) So let's look now at some ways that we steal from people, and then we'll consider how we rob God. Number one, adultery. See, it's no accident commandment number eight follows the prohibition against adultery. Why? Because adultery, that sinful act, robs the marriage covenant of the sacred vows between husband and wife. Secondly, stealing someone's innocence. And that can happen through immorality. It can happen through abuse. Third, kidnapping, and trafficking. The earliest rabbinic tradition, meaning the earliest rabbis, when they interpreted this command, they saw it as specifically prohibiting the stealing of people. Well, actually, there's a lot of evidence for that. Very next chapter, Exodus 21, 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. You are aware that trafficking occurs in our country, aren't you? Are you aware it occurs in our community? Where young women are trafficked? It's not just our community, it's in small towns too. Just this week, 140 students from a Baptist boarding school in Nigeria were kidnapped. That's the fifth kidnapping of Christians in Nigeria just this year. Number four, theft. This is what most of us think about. Theft involves the taking of someone's property without permission. I learned this week that things have gotten so bad in San Francisco that Target and Walgreens are now closing at 6 p.m. every night instead of staying home, staying uh, open until 10 On Monday, perhaps you saw this on the news, maybe you saw a video on your news feed, nine looters were captured on video ransacking a Neiman Marcus and running out of the store in broad daylight with their hands full of merchandise. Many hotels are now sewing microchips into towels. Some of you just got very uncomfortable. You're like, really? Yeah, really. (laughs) One company called Linen Tracking Technology provides these chips to over 2,000 hotels. The hotels don't like letting people know which hotels are using this. 
We could say we're a country of thieves. How about shoplifting? According to the National Association of Shoplifting Prevention, more than 13 billion, that's with a B, worth of goods are stolen from retailers each year. Perhaps you saw within the last couple days, KWQC released a picture of a man who stole over $1,000 worth of merchandise from the Moline Walmart. Recently, Beth and I were in a shop in the Amana colonies, and I decided to do some sermon research while Beth was shopping. So I found the store owner, and I went up to her, and I said, do you have any trouble with shoplifting? And she looked at me, and she said, no, not really. And then she started looking me over, and she said, <laughs> she said, well, we do have security here. And she thought I was casing the joint. <laughs> so she kept an eye on me through that whole time we were in the store. That didn't go so well. Number six, robbery. This involves taking property through force or the threat of force. Burglary. Burglary, burglary involves breaking into a structure to commit a crime. I know an Edgewood family who've been the victims of burglary. burglary it's easy for me to say when when their truck was stolen out of their garage, weeks later, their camper was stolen. This week on KWQC, I watched a report about how a gang has been driving through parking lots in Bettendorf looking for purses. And after smashing several car windows, they made off with credit cards and cash. Do you know where they were? At Splash Landing in Bettendorf. Number eight. It's about to get uncomfortable. (laughs) Stealing from employers. USA Today reports 48% of all American workers have taken something from an employer. This can involve lifting office supplies for personal use, padding expense reports, taking longer lunches, laziness, or cheating on time cards. Number nine, let's flip it, stealing from employees. This can happen when employers don't pay a fair wage or withhold benefits from workers. This sin is addressed, book of James, chapter 5, verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, those wages are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the God of the angel armies. Number 10, refusing to work. Now, some are not able to work, no doubt, because of a disability. Others are looking for work, can't find it. Many are retired, but others can work, but choose not to This is dealt with in 2 Thessalonians 3. For even when we are with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not, what? Eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Another way this command is broken is through false measures and deceptive practices. In 1936, a painting by Leslie Thrasher appeared in the Saturday Evening Post. It looks like one of those Norman Rockwell paintings. It showed a butcher and a woman wanting to buy a chicken. The butcher had his finger on the scale to make it seem heavier, while the customer had her finger underneath the scale pushing up 
to make it seem lighter. Proverbs 11.1 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So I posted this picture on Facebook, and nearly 50 responses came in, and I was so impressed with the caliber of the responses that I want to share a few of their perspectives. This person said, Each of them sees only dollar signs rather than the person across from them made in the image of God. Well, that's good. This person said, both of them are visually focused on the scale. That's how greed and theft work. It's a focus on things rather than people. This person said, just because others don't see doesn't mean that God doesn't. And then I got an email yesterday afternoon from an Edgewood member. The impact of God's holiness in this visual jumped out immediately, and I asked myself, have I even slightly tipped the scale to justify any area in my heart, my thoughts, actions, decisions, and conversations? As I kept studying the photo, I realized, yes, yes, I've tipped the scale. My heart was heavy. My eyes started to swell up with sadness and tears. I started understanding when I tip the scale even slightly, I'm taking God's holiness for granted and reducing the fear of the Lord. Immediately going to God and thanking him for bringing the visual and allowing me to see what my tipping of the scale has done and asking him to forgive me and for taking who he is, the holy of holy, for granted. This person said, we cannot change the weight of sin or our guilt. Christ died so that the final sacrifice and his blood balances the scales of justice. We are granted mercy rather than the judgment we deserve. That's some good theology. This person said, something you said in a sermon years ago, I've repeated many times. My sin stinks just as much as your sin stinks. This person said, he's cheating the scale, she's cheating the scale, but the chicken has them beat because his legs are off the scale. (laughs) And then my favorite one is this, I see a chicken that needs to be fried. (laughs) Number 12, failure to pay debts. Do you know when we don't repay a debt, we're stealing? When we don't return what we borrow... We're breaking this command. Psalm 37, 21 says, The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. Well, while I'm meddling, let's go to the next one, lying on our taxes. I'm reminded of the man who wrote a letter to the IRS, and he said this, I can't sleep. My conscience is bothering me. Enclosed, find a check for $50. And if I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. (laughs) (laughs) Romans 13.7 says, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Number 14, plagiarism. This is actually a big issue uh, now among preachers. In fact, plagiarism among preachers has been in the news. The New York Times has dubbed it Sermon Gate. You know, any time we take something that is not ours without giving credit to the source, we're breaking the Eighth Commandment. Number 15, illegal downloads. 
downloading copyrighted material without permission, whether music or movies, is stealing. Number 16, malicious gossip and rumor. Uh, Most of us don't think of that as breaking the Eighth Commandment, but Proverbs 11.9 says when we rob someone of their reputation, we're breaking that command. We're passing along gossip. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor. Well, here's some consequences that can come when we steal from people. Number one, when you steal, you often lose what you gain. Proverbs 13.11, New American Standard says, Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles. But the one who gathers by labor increases it. By the way, that's a good verse to keep in mind if you have a gambling issue. Secondly, stealing will bring shame. Jeremiah 2.26, as a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. And thirdly, stealing something little can lead to greater sins. Think of Judas John 12, 6 says that he was a thief. He had charge of the money bag and he used to help himself to what was put into it. And later we know that he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So when we steal, we're taking from the person who possesses it and from God who owns it. But when we trust God's providential provision, well, then we'll treat people and their property with respect. So we've looked at some ways that we steal from people. Well, now let's consider how we can avoid stealing from God because we don't want to be stealing from God. One pastor said it like this, when we withhold the things that are rightly his, we are in effect stealing from him. So the Eighth Commandment isn't just about stealing, it's about stewardship. 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us we'll give an account to God for how we've managed what he's entrusted to us. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due him for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. So number one, if we don't want to steal from God, let's make sure we're giving God our time. This past weekend, we were in Des Moines for our niece's wedding. We spent the night on Saturday and decided to go to a brand new church. Uh, Our brother-in-law is the worship uh, pastor there, and we wanted to go and support him. Uh, They meet in West Des Moines, and it's a new church, and so we're following directions on our phone to get there, and we go into this subdivision, and there's this huge golf course and driving range, and it was packed, parking lot, packed out. This is like quarter to nine in the morning. On that same complex, soccer fields, every soccer field packed out and the stands overflowing with fans. We arrived at church. Now, this is a brand new church. But those who were on the core team who were serving, running sound and greeting people, and then Beth and I, and we had some other family members with us, Not counting all of those, you could count the number of people there on one hand. And I had some thoughts. I reflected on that. First, 
I have a hard time believing people when they say they don't come to church on Sunday because it's their only day to sleep in. People get up early on Sunday to do what they want to do. Secondly, now that COVID has subsided, it seems many in our culture, including Christians, are more committed to playing than praying, praising, and coming under the preaching of God's word. Third thing, these are all thoughts that I had. We make time to do what's important to us. So many times when we say we don't have time, we're saying we don't want to because when we want to do something, we find the time, or better yet, we make the time. Let me say it another way. People do what they want to do. So let me ask a couple questions. Are you giving God focused time every day? Or are you just wasting time? Are you just sitting and not doing anything? Are you out of the habit of practicing the Christian disciplines, time in the word every day and prayer, scripture memory and sharing your faith and gathering, growing, giving and going with the gospel? You know, I'm really glad our services are on Cozy TV and I'm glad that all three of our services are live streamed. I really am. Because it's a way for us to reach people. It's a way for us to live on mission and to be able to get the gospel out to those who might not be able to hear it and for those who are part of Edgewood who are not able to come in person. I'm all for it. In addition, I recognize there's still some uncertainty related to covid And there are health concerns that make it very difficult for some people to gather in person. However, I'm concerned as a pastor that some who can gather in person have fallen into the habit of watching worship at home instead of engaging in worship in person. This week, I read an article in Christianity Today. It was called, Why Church Can't Be the Same After the Pandemic. One sentence gripped me. Quote, the immediate challenge is to get people to see the church as a community requiring their involvement rather than as content to consume on their own. Well, let me read that again. The challenge is to get people to see the church as a community requiring their involvement rather than as content to consume on their own. Now, some of us, and let me speak to those who are at home right now, are simply out of the habit of gathering with God's people. We haven't been doing it for a while. I mean, it's been well over a year since COVID hit, and we're just out of the habit. And perhaps you've allowed other things to to take the place of that, and other things have kept you from gathering in person with God's people. Could I urge you to get back into the habit? Hebrews chapter 10 says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet 
together, listen to the next phrase, as is the habit, some have been out of the habit, of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. As things get more and more difficult to live for Christ in our culture, we need each other more and more. So here's an action step. If you've been gathering in person and you know of someone who hasn't been gathering, would you just give them a call and perhaps you'll find out a health concern, another issue to give you an opportunity to pray for them. Or if, they, if they're just out of the habit, they'd love to hear from you. You can invite them to gather again in person. A second way we want to make sure we're not robbing God is to give God of our treasures. Do you know it's possible to rob God by withholding what he has given to us? God asks a very probing question to his people. Book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. God, you can hear his heart here. He says, return to me. People have drifted and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? So the people are like, God, we haven't drifted. We're good. We're fine. And they're like, okay, maybe we have. Well, how would you like us to come back, God? Listen to verse 8. Will man rob? So think commandment 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? The word rob means to take forcibly. Now, the people didn't like that accusation. How could they be stealing from God? Listen, to recognize God's rightful rule and omnipotent ownership of all things, his people were instructed to give tithes and offerings. The word literally means a tenth or 10%. Now, let me be quick to say, because some of you are thinking something like this. Okay, middle of the summer, here comes the tithe sermon. Things must be rough. Let me, let me just take those fears away. I'm trying to be faithful to the preaching of this command. The Bible says one of the ways that we rob God is with our giving. So let me just say this in a note of celebration. You are so generous. And God's people have been giving so generously during COVID and now beyond. We're taking on new missionaries, new projects, receipts have exceeded expenses and and just thrilled with what God's doing here. But let me say this, failure to tithe properly for God's people could have included not giving at all, withholding part of it or not giving at the proper time. Whatever the reason, because they had been robbing God, Listen to what verse 9 says. You are cursed with a curse for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Here's how I think about it. When I grovel about giving or withhold what is his, I'm robbing God of his right to use me to propel his purposes in the world today. Look at the first part of verse 10. God says, bring the whole tithe, the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. 
What's the storehouse? What was the chamber in the temple where the tithes and offerings were kept? Now, for the sake of time, let me just make two summary statements about the application of tithing for today. We are not under the law anymore, but tithing is a good benchmark for believers. In other words, it's a good place to start, sort of like a minimum guide for giving. J. Vernon McGee often said, it's like a yardstick by which we measure ourselves. Secondly, the practice of tithing is a good reminder of who's ultimately in charge of my life. So when I give at least 10%, it's a way to be reminded that God owns everything I have. And ultimately, God wants what my money represents, which is what? Me. When giving to God, I'm just taking my hands off what belongs to him in the first place. Let's go to the New Testament, just one verse. Let me draw four principles from it. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I come. So giving is to be punctual. Believers are to give on a regular basis on the first day of every week. Now, we have offering boxes in the lobby. Many of you give online through the app or website. Giving should be personal. Giving is inherently individualistic. It's between you and God what you give. The Bible's very clear. It says each of you. I don't know what any of you give. I don't want to know. None of the other pastors know. We don't want to know. Number three, giving should be planned. And I'm grateful to Marie Guyton for this particular point, this insight. It says in that verse, we're to put something aside. If we don't plan to give, we'll end up giving God our leftovers or we'll end up not giving at all. That's why among the first checks Beth and I write are our checks to Edgewood. Number four, giving should be proportional. We're to give according to how God has blessed us, the believers to set aside money as he may prosper. So proportional giving means the more God blesses, the more I'm able to give. Someone put it like this, give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. (laughs) Ultimately, when we give, we're saying we trust God to take care of our needs. Look at the last phrase of Malachi 3.10, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Here's how I look at it. When we give at least 10% of our income to God, we're saying that we trust God to be able to live on the other 90%. You know, this is the only place in the Bible where God tells us to test him. That word test means to investigate or prove something is true. It almost doesn't sound right, right? That God says, test me. But God is saying, I dare you. Test me, trust me, and see what I will do in your life. The New Living Translation captures it like this. Try it. Let me prove it to you. Many years ago, I was an intern at a church in the Chicago suburbs, and we had just launched a campaign to pay off the mortgage on the building. We had banners out in the lobby, banners inside the worship center, with just two words on them coming right from Malachi 3, verse 10. Here are the two words, prove me. 
And it was during this emphasis that Beth and I cemented our commitment to tithe as a starting point in our giving. We've never regretted it. I'll never forget the joy we had as we watched God bring in the finances to retire the mortgage. The pastor brought the mortgage, the note, up on the platform and actually burned it during a worship service. And I can't wait for that to happen here when we pay off the mortgage for our expansion and renovation project. And I'm going to share some exciting news about that in two weeks. Now, when I was reflecting on this point, I remembered something Jerry Bridges wrote. And as I share these, ask yourself if you line up with one of these. What's yours is mine, and I'm going to take it. Or maybe you're thinking something like this. What's mine is mine. I worked hard for it. It's mine, and I'm going to keep it. Or maybe you're saying something like this. What's mine is God's, and I'm going to share it. You see, when we steal, we take from the person who possesses it and from God who owns it. When we trust God's providential provision, we will treat people and their property, their possessions with respect. Number three, give God your talents. Pastor Ed preached several weeks ago, you and I have been saved to serve. Romans 12, 6, God has called us to live on mission by using the gifts and abilities he's given to us. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Failing to use what God has given to us is a form of stealing. This week, I was encouraged to hear about so many people living on mission, using the gifts that they've been given. I contacted a couple, a single, and a widow, and I got their permission. Zach and Jessica Alfer, sitting down here at the front, have organized a group of people to stand up for biblical values in their school district. Robin Johnson is now a host for Safe Families. And when her neighbor saw what she was doing, they organized Robin's Closet to help provide clothing and other resources for the kids that she's caring for. Diane Mama, a widow, is having multiple gospel conversations with people. She told me this, everywhere I go, there's an opportunity to minister and bring people to the Lord. Number four, give God the title to your life. Listen, one way to steal from God is by robbing him of his glory. Think Old Testament, Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar. He thought he was all that. And he ended up eating grass like an ox. Go New Testament. Herod, instead of celebrating and pointing to God's glory, he took God's glory and he ended up becoming worm food. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory, I give to no other. Question, are you living for his glory or are you all about your glory? Are you finding yourself in his story, what he's doing, or are you all about your story? 
Now, I can think of some ways we can respond to this message. Number one, repent. The Holy Spirit has convicted you about stealing from a person or from God himself. The first step is to recognize that stealing is sin and to repent of it. In Luke 3.8, John the Baptist challenged people to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. There's different, group, different groups of people listening to him. So he addressed the tax collectors and he said to them, verse 14, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Then there are a bunch of soldiers there, Roman soldiers. This is what he told them. He told them to stop extorting people. He said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Anything you need to repent of. Secondly, anything you need to return? Leviticus 6.4 says, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression. In the Belfast revival of 1922-1923, converted shipyard workers brought back so many tools after they had been converted that the company had to build new storage sheds to hold all of them. After a while, the company said, and I quote, please stop bringing back stolen goods. We have no more room for them. Well, I was convicted studying this week, and I looked in some drawers at our house, and these are pens that belong to Edgewood. I didn't take any of them on purpose, but I bring them home, and they go in a drawer, and they've sat there for a long time, so... I've now brought them back, and you're now witnesses of it, right? (laughs) Hey, anything you need to bring back from your employer, something you borrowed from a neighbor, that book you borrowed five years? Okay, now I'm meddling. (laughs) Number three, restitution. After repenting and returning what was stolen, the Bible's clear about, well, it's clear about making restitution. And the amount is often beyond what was taken. Let me illustrate. Exodus 22, 1 and 4. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and he kills it or he sells it, he shall repay five oxen for the one ox that he had stolen and four sheep for one sheep. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Do you remember after Zacchaeus met Jesus, the tax collector, and he's like, I'm going to, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it. How much? Fourfold. Are you prepared to make restitution for what you've done? Finally, number four, receive. If this command has clobbered you, you are not alone. I find it fascinating. The Bible begins with two thieves stealing forbidden fruit. And that act of theft by Adam and Eve led to the fall of humanity. Later, when God's people come into the promised land with great joy, Achan stole glittering gold and shiny silver, expensive clothing. He buried that loot in the ground, causing God to send his judgment on him and his family. Fast forward to the launch of the first church when two thieves stole money that they had pledged, leading to their deaths. (laughs) I have some great news for you today. Jesus was crucified between two thieves. 
And these two criminals deserved to die for their sins of looting. One of them refused to repent, but listen to what the other one said, Luke 23, 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Hey, in a similar way, you and I deserve death for our sins. Well, this one thief then turns to Jesus, verse 44, 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I love what Jesus said to the thief. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Ray Pritchard points out the last person Jesus forgave before his death on the cross was a thief. And his salvation was instant. Today, it was personal. You, it was certain, will be. It was intimate with me, and it was heavenly in paradise. Fellow thief, are you ready to be forgiven? Are you ready to repent and return and make restitution and most importantly, receive the forgiveness that only Jesus can give as he died as final payment for all your sins? I began with someone paying the price for a man to have some garlic and saying no one should be without garlic. Let me put a twist on that and say this. Someone paid the price for all of your sins because no one should be without salvation. Would you stand? Perhaps you're ready to receive salvation today. If so, you could pray something like this. God, I am busted and I am broken. Not just by this command, but by my selfish sinfulness. And I repent from how I've been living. I turn to you now, Jesus, knowing that you died on the cross in my place, on my behalf, as my substitute. And your blood paid the full price for all of my sins. And Father, thank you for accepting that blood as full payment. It's paying the price, satisfying your righteous and holy justice. Thank you, Jesus, that you rose again on the third day. That gives me hope that I, too, can have victory and power over my sins. And so I believe that you did all that, and now I receive that in my life. I ask you, Jesus, save me. I want to be born again. And then by your Holy Spirit, give me power to follow you faithfully and to bring others along as we seek to be more like you and to make a difference in this world. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for the sake of his fame. In his name we pray, amen.